The following resource is from Bethany Baptist Church in Peoria, Illinois. More information about Bethany can be found at BethanyCentral.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Delighted to be here at Bethany. You know, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg. And that marks the uh, kind of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And so, uh, what that means is we are now at the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Six local Central Illinois pastors have gotten together to put together the Revive the Drive podcast, and then we've divided up into three groups of pairs uh, where we trade pulpits, and it's my privilege to be here while my brother Rich is at uh, our church at East White Oak Bible Church in Carlock. It's a joy for me to do that. Many of you, uh, as well as folks uh, at the Oak, will ask the question, well, which of you is older? And I'm sure that question is, you're pondering that because of my youthful exuberance and boyish good looks. But I, but I have to confess to you that I am the older brother. And it is humor like that that causes Rich to say, we need to do this pulpit exchange regularly. Every 500 years, we'll trade pulpits. This morning, my topic is the scriptures alone. We're gonna be looking at what does it mean when we say, uh, as a summary of the Reformation, that the scriptures alone are our beginning and final authority. I want to invite you this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll pick it up at verse 12 and we'll make our way all the way through chapter 4, verse 4 this morning. While you're turning there to 2 Timothy 3, I want you to know that the Reformation, uh, the people of the Reformation were asking three fundamental questions. Those questions remain today. Uh, The first question is, Where is the final authority? And that's what we're gonna be talking about today. Where is our final authority? A second question that the Reformation was asking was, how is it that people are made right with God? And then lastly, the third question the Reformation was asking and answering is why? Why does the universe exist? Why is, what is the purpose of all things? (laughs) And so, This morning, we're gonna be looking at that first question, where is final authority? Uh, The second question, how are people made right with God, uh, are answered in in three of the other solas of the Reformation. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, uh, faith alone. And solus Christus, Christ alone. We are made right with God by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And then the third question, of course, what's the purpose of it all, is answered by the the fifth sola, soli deo gloria. It is for the glory of God alone. Now I understand it is your habit here at Bethany, just like it is at East White Oak, for for you to stand for the reading of God's word, so I invite you to stand. If you see someone alongside you that doesn't have a Bible open or their phone, uh, would you please share your uh, text of Scripture with them so that we can all look at it together? 
Uh, you might wonder, why is it that you stand for the reading of God's word? Nehemiah chapter 8 gives you the answer. Uh, the people were eager to hear the word of God, and then when uh, Ezra got up to stand and he stood above the people, all the people stood for the reading of God's word in anticipation that we are actually going to hear the very words of God. So here today, the word of the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 3 beginning at verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Please be seated. This morning we're going to look at this text and as we do so, I'm going to give you kind of a little bit of a panorama through the Reformation down to today. And the first question that I wanna uh, try to unpack for you is this question, what was it like to be in a church on the eve of the Reformation? What was it like to be in a church on the eve of the Reformation? Now, contrary to popular belief, at the time, uh, churches were full. (laughs) There was great interest in spiritual matters. Uh, There were a number of reasons for that. Uh, The plague had wreaked havoc in the 150 years before, and every once in a while it would pop out again, and so uh, after having killed upwards of 60% of the population of Europe, people were concerned about their eternal destinies, and perhaps even more importantly, the destinies of their lost or their deceased loved ones. So churches were full. There was a changing economy and it was getting more and more prosperous. The churches were prosperous. Uh, Pope Leo actually started the refurbishing and the building of St. Peter's. So there was a popularity and a prosperity going on on the eve of the Reformation. The second thing that I'd want to note is that there was no singing, no singing in church, at least on the part of the congregation. Uh, That had been decided many years before where, uh, you know, frankly, the clergy just didn't think that you sang well enough. They didn't think you could sing well enough. And so you would mess up the chants. And so what they did was they said, no, you don't sing, the clergy sings. Uh, 
There was no pulpit in the middle of the church. In fact, there was very few pulpits at all and little preaching. Most Sundays, there was no sermon. All of the focus was on the mass. And by the way, everything was said in a language you did not understand, Latin. Uh, You might think that uh, church seating has always been true, not true. You came to church. The, The clergy, of course, got to sit. All the clerics sat. And perhaps a few dignitaries. But for most of us, there were no seats for you. When it came time to communion, to have communion, you were only given the bread because, frankly, if the, body, if the bread and the cup become the literal body and blood of Jesus, as Catholic teaching continues to teach today, then it was a really quite a mess if a congregant messed up and spilled the, the, the wine. And therefore, they felt you could not be trusted with that. There was lots of penance, but little repentance. It's a big word that's a difference in how Martin Luther saw things. It's based on a mistranslation of the Bible. Uh, The idea of somehow you had to do things in order to be right with God and the things you did were the things that the church told you to do and if you did those things, then you were right with God. So now let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Right on the eve of the Reformation, these verses were being lived out. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, It's a promise in the Bible and there was great persecution of people who were seeking to recover the truths of Scripture. Uh, People like John Huss in Croatia, John Wycliffe in England were martyred for their faith. On the eve of the Reformation, Indeed, this was true. Those who desired to live a godly life were persecuted. It goes on to say in verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. On the eve of the Reformation, evil people and imposters, the word means cheats or, or swindlers, went from bad to worse, and there were two things that were going on. They were deceiving people but they themselves were also deceived. Let me just run you through a little bit of history at the risk of putting you to sleep. I just want to share with you a few of the popes right on the eve of the Reformation and what was true of them. Sixtus IV, elected pope in 1471, apparently had six illegitimate children, including one with his sister. That did not stop him from policing things. He created a church tax on prostitutes and charged priests for having mistresses. He also was engaged in a little bit of nepotism. He made six of his nephews cardinals. I guess uh, on the bright side, he did commission the Sistine Chapel. (laughs) Innocent VII, who became pope in 1484, was the first pope to openly acknowledge eight illegitimate children 
though he may have had more. Alexander VI became pope in 1492, but before he became pope, he was merely known as Rodrigo Borgia, a member of the notorious Italian crime family, the Borgias. And in true crime family fashion, he used his money to buy his way into the papacy. He had several mistresses, fathered at least nine illegitimate children, and it gets even more R-rated from there with him, and I won't go into those details. Uh, Julius II was elected pope in 1503. He was known as the most ferocious pope of the period, imperious, hot-tempered, manically active, That's because he used to dress up in a silver suit of armor and lead troops up and down Italy engaging in battles to extend the reach of the church's authority and territory. But Julius II had also contracted syphilis, apparently via prostitutes, and on Good Friday, 1508, his feet were so covered by sores that the faithful could not kiss them. After becoming Pope in 1513, just four years before Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses, Leo X became Pope and commissioned the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica and to pay for his grand plans, he authorized the sale of what were known as indulgences, essentially promised reduced punishment time for sins. Now understand that the Catholic Church will still tell you that they believe that the permanent sacrifice of, 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 for sins is accomplished by Christ, but the temporary punishment for sins is ours to bear. And so the view was that the church has a treasury of grace, this huge amount of grace that they have by virtue of the piousness of the saints and martyrs, and therefore the church could dispense that grace to whomever it wished. And so if you want to get out of purgatory, this time of temporary punishment for your sins, you needed to call upon the church for that treasury of grace. In the same way, if you wanted to reduce the time of punishment for your loved one, you could call on the church's treasury and they could tell you what to do to help your loved one secure his way or her way out of purgatory into heaven. And so, it, and by the way, can you believe that even as far ago as 500 years ago, troubles began with financing church building programs? Uh, that happened here because Pope Leo came up with this idea of the sale of indulgences. In other words, you, could, you can buy uh, these, these, these get-out-of-purgatory uh, graces. And there was, a, there was a Dominican priest by the name of Johannes Tetzel who was particularly good at marketing. And so he went around all over Europe uh, selling these indulgences And he even had a little jingle, and the jingle in English went something like this. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Uh, and, And so people lined up to buy these indulgences, and the money was used to pay for the church. Luther tells a story about Tetzel that he had received quite a bit of money at a town called Leipzig, And a nobleman there asked Tetzel if it was possible to receive a letter of indulgence for a future sin, 
In other words, I haven't committed the sin yet, but I got a sin in mind, and I'd like to get an indulgent for the sin that I have planned to do. And Tetzel said, yes, I will give you a letter of indulgence for that, but you have to pay now. The nobleman paid at once and received the letter and the seal from Tetzel. And when Tetzel left Leipzig, this nobleman attacked him on the road and gave him a thorough beating and took all his money and told him that that was the future sin he had in mind. This is what it was like to be in a church on the eve of the Reformation. What are some ways that we can apply the truths of 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13 and what we've learned about the Reformation so far to our own lives? First, just because because a church has so-called increased numbers, money, influence, and excitement, that is no indication of its faithfulness to God. The Catholic Church on the eve of the Reformation had all of these. In fact, increasing popularity and influence generally means that churches lose rather than gain their prophetic voice of truth because to stake out a position means that some people are going to disagree with it. And the temptation, therefore, is to say as little controversial as possible so that as many people as possible will think that the church agrees with them. We must beware of that same temptation. Second application, the issue of worship was a critical question of the 16th century. They were absolutely zealous about it. Even when they were wrong, they were zealous about it, and it ought to convict us. Do we have the same zeal about worship? And thirdly, the issue of authority is known as the formal principle of the Reformation. On what basis do we believe that anything is true? The Reformers said the basis is the Scriptures. That's the basis on which we know that things are true. Today, we answer the question differently. Of course, the Catholic Church answered the question differently. They said that the the basis that we know things are true is the Scriptures and, the Scriptures and tradition, the Scriptures and reason, the Scriptures and the popes, the, 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 the Scriptures and the magisterium. The Reformers said, sola scriptura, the Scriptures alone. How do we answer that question today? I think We answer it differently than either of those two groups in our culture, modern American culture. I think we answer the question, how do we know that anything is true? Well, because I say so. Personal autonomy. You know, you can believe anything you want to, that's fine for you, and I believe anything I want to, and that's fine for me. I get to do that. Perhaps the greatest prophet of that uh, notion of the 20th century was Hugh Hefner, who just died two weeks ago. I just recently saw an interview that he had in the 1960s with William F. Buckley, and he's pontificating on, uh, he's just proclaiming the new morality, how, which is nothing but the old immorality, but he's t- just saying how great it is, Hefner is, and Buckley continues to ask him this question. He keeps pressing. He says, 
But how do you know that you're right? How do you know that's true? What is the basis of your authority for saying that? And Hefner had no answer to that question. Why? Because it's true because he thinks it's true. This question of authority is a question that you too must answer. On what basis do you think that anything is true? So now let's look at verses 14 through 17, and we will look at the Reformation's recovery of the Bible, the recovery of the Bible. The first thing that I want to note is that uh, at the beginning of the Reformation, uh, there was a really strong impetus, strong uh, effort to translate and print the Bible. Gutenberg's printing press had been invented, and there was this flurry of translation so that in the 1520s, the Bible was translated into French and English and German, and by 1546, when Luther died, it was estimated that over half a million copies of his German Bible were in people's hands. This key question, how do we know what is true? The reformers answered with the answer, the Bible is our starting place and our final authority. Why can we say with confidence that the reformers were right on this? That the Bible is our starting place and our final authority. Why can we say that? Why can we say, in fact, that the Roman Catholic Church in its answer, Scripture and tradition, reason, Pope, magisterium, why can we say they are wrong? Well, let's look at what the Bible has to say. There are four reasons found in our text here. Verse 15 gives us reason number one. How from childhood, Paul writes to Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Reason number one is that only the scriptures lead us to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This sola, sola scriptura, is the basis for all the others. The only reason we know that we are saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, is that the Bible tells us. We can't know that by studying nature. We can't tell that by reason. We can't tell that by a group of people sorting it out. Only God can communicate that truth to us. And only the scriptures lead us to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. A second reason we can say with confidence that the reformers were right, the Bible is the starting place and our final authority, is that only the scriptures are God-breathed. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. The problem with tradition and popes and the magisterium is that they too must be interpreted. So rather than solve a problem, the Catholic notion of authority actually creates millions more. How are you going to interpret this, the findings of popes and councils? And the problem with reason is that it is broken by the fall. We can't be sure that we are reasoning correctly. It's broken by the fall just as much as our wills are. This is why the study of Scripture in community is so important. 2 Peter 1.20 is so valuable for us in that. No Scripture is given to anyone's private interpretation. But of foremost importance 
is that only the scriptures are God-breathed. What is written in scripture is the very word of God. Only the word of God has the power of God. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces down to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The scriptures alone are God-breathed. They are not inspired in the same way that a song is inspiring. This is the inspiration of existence. The Bible was brought into existence by the breath or spirit of God. The Bible originated in the mind of God and was communicated to human writers by God's spirit. Not in some dictation fashion. Uh, in fact, it was a miraculous fashion. Second Peter 1.21 says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Martin Luther could say, a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a pope or council without it. William Tyndale, we'll hear more about him at the end of the message happened to be in the company of a certain clergyman, a very learned man, and in debating with him, uh, drove him to this issue of the Scriptures. And this clergyman burst out with these words, we would be better without God's laws than the Pope's. Tyndale, hearing this, replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares me life, before many years go by, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the Scriptures than you do. And it was his intention to translate the Bible into English so that a common plowboy would know more of the Bible. Notice that it also says all Scriptures breathed out by God, not all and fill in the blank of anything else. All science all of our debates, all polling data. <laughs> no, it's all Scripture. And it's not just parts of Scripture that I like. That's the problem with Scripture and. The and always ends up in charge. You say the Scripture and something. Remember, a number of years ago, I was counseling with a young woman who was contemplating divorcing her husband, and I would share a word of Scripture with her, and she would say, oh, I like that. And I'd share another word of Scripture. She says, oh, I don't like that. And I commented to her, you know, of course there's things that you like and things that you don't, but it's all God's Word. <laughs> it's all Scripture. And it's not just the spiritual parts where there's other parts that have to do with history or science that are declarations that are not inspired. No, no, no. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So only the Scriptures lead us to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Only the Scriptures are God-breathed. Reason number three why the Reformers are right, only Scripture can do what Scripture does. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The Scriptures tell us how to think. That's the phrase 
It's profitable for teaching and reproof. It's teaching us how to think. Positively, it teaches us the right things. Negatively, it reproves us. It corrects the wrong things. And the Scriptures not only tell us how to think, they tell us how to live. It's profitable for correction and training in righteousness. Negatively, it corrects our wrong actions. The idea here is improvement, correction, restoration. Positively, it shows us the way of what to do is right, training, upbringing, discipline. Only the Scriptures can do what Scripture does. Reason number four is found in verse 17. Only the Scripture equips us to be completely nurtured God kind of people. The Bible is our sufficiency. This describes the goal of Scripture, a completely nurtured person, complete, capable, proficient, able to meet all demands kind of person. Don't you want to be that? Don't you want to be that kind of person? It says here, all scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. We do not mean by the scriptures alone that we consult nothing but scripture, but it does mean that we consult the scriptures first and last. The Bible has the final say on everything that the Bible says something about, is how one fellow put it. The Word of God is sufficient to do the work of God. It does not need any help. So, while the Bible does not say anything to me about how to change the oil in my car or what kind of diet will help me live a long life or how to do surgery, you know, where the Bible does not speak, we're called upon to use reason, experience, tradition, others' wisdom, the study of God's universe. But, on the matter of equipping us to be complete, mature, proficient followers of the living God, it all comes down to Scripture. Let's think about some applications here. The church has no authority except as she submits to the Word of God. You know, there are a lot of folks who make much about the continuity of the popes And that's an attractive thing, particularly to some people who've grown up in evangelical churches that are young and thinking, wow, the institution of the church and its continuity all the way back to the apostles, there's something really important, significant about that. Uh, Making much of the continuity of the popes as though institutional continuity is important. That's not important. What's important is gospel continuity. Does what the church teach align with the Bible? The church doesn't establish the Bible as authentic. The Bible establishes the church as authentic. Calvin said it best. He says, the difference between us and the papists is that they believe that the church cannot be the pillar of the truth unless she presides over the Word of God. We, on the other hand, assert that it is because she reverently subjects herself to the Word of God that the truth is preserved by her and passed on to others by her hands. Second application that we need to note is that God has in the past and can make his word scarce. In 1 Samuel chapter three, we read the word from the Lord was scarce in those days. Uh, The prophet Amos prophesied Uh, The word of the Lord, he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I'll send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, 
but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. God can and has in the past made his word scarce. That was what it was like at the, on the eve of the Reformation. For God's own purposes, his word was scarce. And the Reformation was this blinding, flashing light, dawning of the Bible being recovered for the church. Do we cherish the fact that you get to hear every week in church the preaching of the Word of God? By the way, I just want to say something about my brother here. <clears throat> I love his preaching. He's the best preacher I know. And there's a, let me just tell you one thing I like about his preaching. Rich is able to take things and say them in such a way that he brings one truth from one end and another truth from another, another in, a, in a way that just go, whoa, that is so obviously true and I haven't ever connected that before. And um, <clears throat> that's the mark of a good preacher. And not only that, he, he really loves you guys. So, um, But do we cherish that? Do we cherish that every week we get to hear from the Bible. Is the Bible enough for you? You think, well, yeah, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but? Have you ever heard that before? I know what the Bible says, but? There is nothing to say after that word. <laughs> there is no but, the Bible. <laughs> That's our help. That's our guide. So now let's go to chapter 4. Verses 1 to 4. What is it like to be in a church in the 21st century? And I'm going to start at verses 3 and 4, and I'll jump back to verses 1 and 2 at the end. Uh, verse 3. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Uh, the endurance of sound teaching is on the decline. There's a number of reasons for that. Attention spans are declining. We're visually stimulated. But mostly it says here, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We want to hear what we want to hear. You know, I think that for most of us, going back to the Reformation days and hearing the sermons of the 16th century would be kind of an interesting prospect. John Calvin, for example, preached from the New Testament on Sunday mornings, and from the New Testament of the Psalms and Sunday afternoons, and from the Old Testament every morning of the week at 6 a.m. He preached 123 sermon series in Genesis, 201 in Deuteronomy, uh, 353 in Isaiah, uh, 189 messages in the book of Acts, 110 in 1 Corinthians. He preached without notes. When he preached from the Old Testament, he simply had a Hebrew Bible in front of him. And when he preached from the New Testament, he had a Greek New Testament in front of him. Ulrich Zwingli, who was a reformer from Zurich in Switzerland, did something very remarkable. One day he decided, I'm not going to preach from the lectionary, which was the assigned readings that the church had given. Instead, what I'm going to do, novel idea, I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 1 and I'm just going to preach consecutively through the book. 
That was a radical idea. And he began with Matthew, continued through Acts, first and second Timothy, Galatians, first and second Peter. In seven years, he had preached through the New Testament and began to preach from the old. And here's what he said about this. He said, when I was younger, I gave myself too much to human teaching like others of my day. And about seven or eight years ago, I undertook to devote myself entirely to the scriptures. But I was always prevented by philosophy and theology. Eventually, I came to the point where, led by the Word and the Spirit of God, I saw the need to set aside all these things and to learn the doctrine of God direct from His own Word. Then I began to ask God for light, and the Scriptures became far clearer to me. In the 21st century, we demand teachers who will tell us what we once said. If we want to justify our divorce, our sexual identity, our basic human goodness, we can find a teacher who will tell us that we are right and just how good we are. If you want to know how to be happy, how to get the life that you want, you can get a teacher who will tell you in five to six messages something practical on those themes. Even better, if the teacher can tell you a verse from the Bible that somehow fits what the teacher is saying, that way it looks biblical even if it's not. God can, in this day, make His Word scarce. Verse 4, they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Turn away from the truth. Jesus said that the basis of Christian unity is truth. He prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. But we are skilled at self-justification. Do we focus on our own traditions? Justifying them is more important than the Bible itself. If we do, that will kill the interest of the next generation that we have anything important to say. Instead, I say, let's unleash the Bible. Wandering off into myths, myths like the wonders of yoga, the idea that God exists to make you happy and fulfilled, the myth that success as you define it is how God wants to bless you. These are all things that the church of Jesus Christ is suffering from at this very moment. Is it any wonder then why Paul urges Pastor Timothy in this charge in verses one and two, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. God is here. Who is to judge the living and the dead? He's the judge. By his appearing, Jesus Christ is coming again. And by his kingdom, his kingdom is all that matters. That's the formal charge. And then the charge is this. Preach the word. (laughs) Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Whether it is met with successful things or with failure, preach the word. And then he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In other words, be a pastor. Be a pastor. So let me share with you some applications here. The first is, the question, you know, if the scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, I want to ask you a question. Are you right with God? Have you reached a stage in your life where you recognize that all you deserve is God's wrath? That's all you deserve because you're 
a broken person, broken by sin. And that only some rescue that comes from outside of you can make you right with God and that rescue comes in the person of God's own son, Jesus, who died on the cross for your sin and shed his blood so that whoever puts their faith in him and what he did at the cross will be saved from their sin and God will now be 100% for them. Have you come to that place? You may have heard it a hundred, perhaps a thousand times and it's like God has never opened your eyes to it but now, right in this moment, the Spirit of God is opening your eyes. Tell God that you are trusting His Son and what He did at the cross and you will be forgiven of your sins. Second application. This should affect our worship and our singing. The Reformation brought congregational singing. We sang Luther's song, Ein Festeberg, a mighty fortress is our God. He wanted the congregation to be a singing congregation. We have a song to sing because we can hear from God's word. <laughs> we have a song to sing. Do we sing it? Calvin rewrote the Psalter to a different tunes so that they were singing the Psalms to different tunes. And did you know the people in Geneva uh, didn't like Calvin's new songs? They got kind of upset with that. They gave him a name, Geneva Jigs. We don't like any of those Geneva Jigs, those new songs. We don't like those. <laughs> Some things never change. <clears throat> Listen, God has given us a new song to sing, and we should sing it. Of course, in accordance with Scripture, that was what the Reformers were all about. Uh, a few weeks ago, my wife went to a conference called The Heart of the Artist, and in it, the speaker was talking about leading a group of worship uh, leaders uh, in a practice. And some of the worship singers said to him, hey, wait a minute, it feels like all we are is background here. When is it that we're gonna kinda be able to show off our chops a little bit? <clears throat> The leader rightly said, <clears throat> I said, time out here. And he gathered him around and he said, I want you to know, we're all background. We're all background. It should affect our worship and our singing. It should cause us to have a renewed excitement about communion. That it's a, it's a remembrance of what our Lord did for us, and that we get to partake in the bread and the cup. I want to show you a, <clears throat> a picture of a church. What you see in front of you is uh, called a rood screen, R-O-O-D, that's Saxon for cross because typically there's a crucifix above the screen. And, <clears throat> you know, I showed this picture to some folks at our church, like, oh, that's beautiful. I said, I think it's a horror and you'll find out in the sermon today. Let me tell you why that's horrible. Do you see how far the altar is away from the people? It's placed as far away as it can get. Do you see the seats for the clerics? They aren't looking out at you. They're looking at each other as they sing their songs. Do you see a pulpit? There is no pulpit because there's no preaching of the word. And the rude screen was there to keep 
all of us, the great unwashed, from getting into the presence of the real faithful. As a result of the Reformation, the rude screens were torn down all over Europe. Even in Catholic churches, they were torn down. I want you to not think ever again the same about what you, what you experience when you walk into this room. You get to sit down. You get to hear what's going on in your language. You get to open a Bible that is translated in your language. You have a speaker who speaks from a pulpit from the Word of God. You get to sing the songs of Zion. You get to sing and bring making melody in your heart to the Lord together. And there is no barrier between you and the presence of God, for we are all members of one body. You get to sing, you drink the cup, the pulpit's in the center, you get to sit, the service is in a language you understand, you did not have a Bible, now you do. In architecture and every other way, here at Bethany, the Word of God is exalted as the first and final authority. The Bible you hold in your hands, no matter how no matter what version it is, is thanks to a man named William Tyndale. He, uh, he studied at Oxford. After he'd studied for a while, they allowed him to start studying theology, but the official course did not include a systematic study of the Bible. Tyndale later complained, they've ordained that no man can look on Scripture until he be nozzled in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he's clean shut out of understanding of the Scriptures. He was a gifted linguist, came fluent over the years in French, Greek, Hebrew, German, Italian, Latin, and Spanish, in addition to English. And he was translating the Bible into English, betrayed by a friend into the hands of his enemies, taken back to England, and was strangled to death while tied at the stake, and then his dead body was burned. His final words spoken at the stake, it was said with fervent zeal and with a loud voice, Lord, Open the king of England's eyes. And within four years, there were four different versions of the English Bible, all based on Tyndale. And a generation later, in 1611, a different king, King James, commissioned the King James Version of the Bible, 75% of which is exactly as Tyndale had translated it in the Old and New Testaments. Tyndale's prayer was answered. Luther, at the end of his life, was explaining his work to his young students, and this is what he declared. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word, otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did everything. May we have the same zeal to unleash the Word of God in our generation. Father in heaven,
today we quiet our hearts to say thank you for these reformers who recovered the truths from the apostolic period of the word of God. And we do pray that the word of God would be our first and final authority, that we would read it, that we would love it, that we would cherish it. And Lord, I pray that if anyone doesn't know Christ here, that you will do that work of opening their eyes and cause them to see the truth of the gospel, that they might believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethany Baptist Church. Feel free to make copies of this message to give others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without permission. For more information, visit us online at BethanyCentral.org. Bethany Baptist Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and preparing His people to worship Him now and forever.